2: photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time
1: they're now converted into basically mathematical shapes and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape
2: good evening listeners
1: good evening listeners
0: Good evening, listeners. It is November 24th, a Sunday, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one
2: thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Heather Forsythe. Here at Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study, and here on Inspiration, every week, we feature the research and their personal stories. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, you can check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. And here you can find more about our up and coming guests and links to all kinds of information about them, our Twitter and Facebook pages, and also a link to our podcast. So if you miss an episode (laughs) or want to listen to an episode again or listen to all of our episodes, you can find that and listen to them. Them. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they
0: occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Alan Harrington, who is a second-year master student in the Department of Animal and Rangeland Sciences, who's working with Dr. Jonathan Dinkins. Alan's research and fieldwork focuses on three species of sage-grouse steppe-habitat obligate songbirds. Hi, Alan. Welcome.
1: How y'all doing? <laughs>
0: good. Good. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. That intro just got me super inspired. I felt like there was a lot of dissemination of information that's about to happen.
2: Oh, so. yes. That yes. Is. Specifically we're... about songbirds, I would guess.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Ho-
2: hopefully. Hopefully not going to throw a curveball
0: at <laughs> us and start <laughs> talking about something we're not prepared for. <laughs> um, well, yes. Yeah, so in... In talking to you before the show, it became very clear to Heather and myself that um, I guess the topic that surrounds your research question is quite complex, like there's a lot of different layers to it. So I think the best way to maybe start off is how about you tell us first a little bit about sagebrush steppe habitat, a mouthful. (laughs) Sure,
1: sure. Yeah. So uh, sagebrush steppe habitat also... Known as just sagebrush ecosystem or sagebrush, um, it encompasses a lot of the western United States, um, and uh, it's sort of flagship. Sort of the 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 reason why it is called sagebrush step is because of the sagebrush, um, which is a uh, species, and it's. Um, it's sort of subspecies that occupy and uh, kind of make up this ecosystem. So uh, there's multiple different uh, subspecies of sagebrush and, um, and they kind of uh, incur in, occur in their own complexities across the landscape. But um, sagebrush uh, basically makes up and forms the sagebrush step ecosystem. <clears throat>
2: So something that I was a little confused about when we first talked about this is, but it's also really interesting, is that the sagebrush habitat is really defined by the plant that is there. And it like the type of ecosystem that you would picture in your mind is very diverse for this. So it goes like up onto mountains and also down into lower elevation. It's pretty much anywhere that's flat, it seems like, (laughs) with this plant.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think like people oftentimes think of it as kind of being a uh, an an ecotype that is in flatter areas, but I mean, especially in my uh study area in in eastern Oregon, I've come to find that uh just when you think that it's going to be an ecosystem in sort of the flatter parts of of western North America, you you'll go out into these canyon lands and some of these areas in eastern Oregon, you're like Nope, it's definitely not in some of these <laughs> flat places because this, this area is crazy as far as its topography, but you're right. And, and there's also a lot of places, especially, um, sort of, the um, kind of, uh, transitional zone, uh, in Wyoming where the grasslands are sort of forming more into shrublands and that, and that area is, uh, definitely very flat. So. I would say that if anything, it's, it's very diverse in sort of the topography in which it, where and where, where it can uh, occur on the landscape.
0: So sagebrush, very widespread in Western North America, and it's super important for a lot of different species, um, especially birds. Um, so how about you talk us, um, a little bit about, um, the background of like the main species that's often connected to sagebrush, which is the greater sage grouse.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, so greater sage grouse, they're, um, they're a galliform. So there are a, uh, a species that, um, is in fact hunted in the United States and, uh, and they have a lot of close cousins that are also of other grouse species. Um, some that are even in this in similar habitats, like the, uh, sharp tailed grouse. But uh, probably what's most important about this species is just how much um, research and political scrutiny it gets, based on where it occurs in Western North America and the fact that um, it is a representative species of the sagebrush habitat. And so, um, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, something that a lot of people have heard the name of and know about, but they don't necessarily know maybe where it occurs or, um, you know, kind of why it's such a, a, important species that they may hear in like, um, you know, headlines or something like that, that are talking about uh, environmental conservation in the Western United States. So, um, the sage grouse is considered a sagebrush obligate species. Mm-hmm. And so it requires sagebrush to fulfill all of its, biological needs um and it is uh received a lot of that political and um you know uh there's there's a lot of eyes on this species because of uh both where it occurs and how uh it it, how important it is to represent the ecosystem that it um it remains in and and sort of the um kind of current political and environmental climate that exists around sagebrush habitats.
0: Right. And so because um, it's hunted, right, so there's, you know, interest, um, you know, for the population to continue to do well and so that, you know, can continue to be hunted. And also because it is an obligate of sagebrush, um, it is linked quite closely to the habitat. What what does that mean for the conservation of that habitat?
1: Sure. Yeah. So so um before we we dive into all of this terminology (laughs) um so i think what you're getting at here is the fact that um my research really focuses around the fact that this species in particular the sage grouse is considered an umbrella species for this habitat
0: yes that is what i was getting (laughs) at
1: and um what that means is that the sage grouse um, is sort of a a representative species in this ecosystem. And therefore, um, you know, this idea of, uh, of surrogate species conservation, um, uh, umbrella, the umbrella species concept, a lot of these ecological terms that are thrown around, thrown around really just mean that this species is thought to represent this ecosystem. And by protecting this species, you're creating an umbrella of conservation that exists across the entire sagebrush steppe habitat, um, and therefore you're protecting any other uh, sagebrush-associated or sagebrush-obligate species that occur within that same habitat.
2: Why is it a bird in particular that would be this umbrella species or an indicator species, I know it's otherwise sometimes called, as opposed to maybe some kind of rodent or... I don't know a heartier animal.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Um, so that's there's a couple answers to that, but I think probably the most significant ones would be the fact that, um, like I said, it is an obligate species, and so it is extremely closely tied to the ecosystem that it occurs in. I mean, sage grouse not only uh, spend the the wonderful parts of the year, the spring and the summertime, in sagebrush habitat. Um, where they're breeding and they're sort of just enjoying the fruits of, uh, that time of year, but they also have to overwinter in that habitat mm-hmm. as well. And so, um, so they're not only, uh, very closely tied to that habitat, uh, during these really formidable, um, seasons of the year where they're, they're, you know, um, breeding and, and hopefully keeping their, their population numbers, uh, where they need to be, but they are also uh, reliant upon that habitat in the wintertime, which is very different than the the three sagebrush obligate species that I study. But um, the other thing that um, kind of makes them, makes this bird species in particular, and many other bird species across ecosystems and taxa um, sort of a, um, umbrella species for that ecosystem is the fact that they typically respond very quickly to any sort of environmental change mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's sort of just one of the benefits as researchers that we have uh, in studying birds is that they can oftentimes be uh, one of the best indicators of ecosystem health and any changes that are occurring in those habitats and in those ecosystems so
0: um and so. So before we dive into what is kind of um, the current state, I guess, of that habitat and of the sage grouse, let's talk a little bit about your bird species, because it's not directly the sage grouse. It is songbirds or three species of songbird. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the three?
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, so my, re- my research is kind of focusing around this idea of um, conservation by proxy, which is um, is, uh, another term and jargon that I'm not going <laughs> to dive too far into. But, um, the idea really is that, um, by studying, uh, one species, we're going to obtain information about an ecosystem as a whole. Um, it can also often be employed with, with greater sage grouse, but my interests really are focused around these three species. Um, and, whether or not these other three sagebrush obligate species are also receiving these same conservation protections um, that are um, employed on the on, in sagebrush habitats and in that landscape um, for greater sage-grouse. So uh, those three species include the brewer's sparrow, uh, the sagebrush sparrow, and the sage thrasher. And all three of those are migratory species that uh, require sagebrush in order to complete the breeding needs that they have um, in spring and into summer.
0: And so we wanted you to bring some some sounds, some songs of those birds, but you forgot to. So sing (laughs) for us, Alan. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm not going to make you do that. Um, but so basically what you're trying to get at is you're, you're putting this umbrella species concept to the test, right? To see whether the conservation of the sage grouse has created this umbrella for not only the sagebrush steppe habitat, but for these other obligate, um, sagebrush obligate birds that require the habitat to, for their life history.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, um, the umbrella species concept isn't just unique to sagebrush habitats it's um it's a single species approach to conservation that's actually very widely applied across taxa um and ecosystems and so really i'm just trying to poke some more holes in this umbrella species concept where um you know it is this very widely and accepted theoretical theoretical approach to Uh, or or even you could consider it a a shortcut to conservation and and the application of it. Um, Yet it's very rarely empirically tested. And so, um, you know, uh, the the benefits of my research are extending beyond just bringing some more um, applied information for managers and um, people who have interests in, you know, how species are, are doing and responding uh, in this environment, um, but also hopefully we'll uh, answer some more broader questions about the theory of umbrella species uh, conservation and um, and sort of you know of course my goal is to kind of figure out if if uh, it, it truly is um, providing well for these other three sage obligate species or if maybe there's uh, some some gaps in knowledge there that I can fill with that research, with this research. There.
2: So what is the current state, maybe, within Oregon or wider, if uh, you want to talk more about that, but there's a lot of political talk involved, there's a lot of concerns and information that, is maybe important for the background of understanding why this research is really important.
1: Yeah. Well, so I'm, unfortunately this, in, this, uh, this, this ecosystem. So the sagebrush steppe habitat, um, is one of the most imperiled ecosystems in North America. Um, along with grasslands, uh, it is declining at a faster rate than any other, um, any other ecosystem. And so, uh, the effects of that you know are sort of um you could think of them as a trickle down effect in that the the um depletion of the habitat itself is going to have implications for the critters that are occupying that that habitat and what we have seen really since european settlement um is that uh sage populations and other sage-associated species have also been in decline with, uh, along with the habitat. So um, that also paired with the fact that uh, the greater sage-grouse, like we've mentioned, that's sort of representative of this ecosystem, has been uh, petitioned for listing under the Endangered Species Act on more than one occasion, uh, both in 2010 and, and 2015. And um that listing was um warranted but ended up being precluded so they weren't actually listed um mm-hmm. as a species as a endangered species um but what uh the repercussions of that really were um sort of the the intensity of stakeholders and their involvement in this issue and and really kind of um pushing both managers, researchers, private landowners, et cetera, to all want to, uh, you know, get their, their hands and their, uh, and their investments in this conservation effort to, uh, do whatever they, whatever was necessary to kind of keep these, uh, keep these birds from, from listing. And so, um, there have been a lot of grassroots efforts, uh, and, and, Um, organizations that have been working really hard over the past, you know, five, 10 years um, to uh, both produce a bunch of research and also uh, implement on the ground conservation and protection of these species.
0: Yeah. So you, so you mentioned stakeholders and private landowners, and I think something that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that sagebrush step habitat often doubles as, um, uh, land used for grazing cattle or is often like very adjacent to farmland and so that's kind of like this conflict well not really conflict but I guess this problem that's arising or what people are concerned about is that if this greater sage grouse is listed then there will be greater restrictions on how that land can be used is is that kind of the idea for like this worry or concern
1: yeah definitely um so the endangered species act um is a federal a process that, um, if critters do end up getting listed, um, that can have implications for any habitat that's designated as critical for those species. Um, so the risk, uh, that's involved for all of these stakeholders, um, cattle ranching, uh, agriculture, um, oil and gas, a lot of these sort of land uses also happen to, um, parallel with sagebrush habitats and the repercussions could be pretty (laughs) pretty catastrophic, um, (laughs) pretty (laughs) catastrophic for, um, for a lot of industry, a lot of, um, a lot of economic value for, um, both, you know, states in the American West, if, um, if these birds were uh, listed. So, so, uh, yeah. So when I say stakeholders, I'm, I'm really referring to, not only um, the people that manage the public lands that uh, these birds uh, occupy, um, all sagebrush obligates, but also um, the uh, industry and the economic value that um, can come from uh, sagebrush rangelands.
2: So let's get into your actual role in this research and study. So you go out into the field and you (laughs) do other research. Can you tell us like what does your day-to-day research look like and what are you doing at OSU?
1: Yeah. Um, well, so I have this really kind of, I mean, for, for me, it's a very unique opportunity. I've spent quite a lot of time in my professional career in and around university settings. And, um, This is the first time that I've ever worked on a project that's so incredibly collaborative. So, uh, I work with two of two other lab mates in my, um, department that also, um, that also collect data, uh, in the exact same study area that we all work within. Um, one of those is collecting data on Raven ecology. And, um, the other student in my lab is collecting all of this greater sage grouse, um, Uh, data as well. So we have a very collaborative project, um, which makes our day-to-day operations interesting (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) Um, if anything, it's, uh, it's a, um, a, a data research season that, you know, you, you, you think you have an idea of what's going on that week and it could be completely different just based on the, the, the rigor of the work and the dynamics of the work. But I like to tell people that the typical field day <laughs> that we have <laughs> out there is, um, you know, getting up really early in the morning, well before the sun comes up to um, drive to these locations that we do, uh, this, all of the surveying that we do for each one of our given projects. My, my research in particular, um, I'm collecting abundance data on the three sagebrush obligate songbirds that I'm interested in. Um, and then I'm also collecting, uh, nesting data on them as well. So we have a study area of 1.4 million acres across Eastern Oregon. It covers five different priority areas of conservation for greater sage grouse. Um, those are areas that were designated by the Oregon department of fish and wildlife. And, um, they're supposed to encumber, encompass. I don't know what I, where I'm coming up with these it's words Sunday. this evening. <laughs> it's, it's Sunday. It's, it's been a long week. <laughs> I mean, I swear they're just two words that are pieced together. <laughs> like they do stem from two different words. Um, <laughs> uh, it encompasses. Um, habitat that, uh, has the highest density of breeding sage grouse in in the state. So we cover five of those priorities, priority areas of conservation. And, um, we sample for abundance of raptors, Ravens. And then of course my songbirds at 147 random point locations that are buffered about 2,500 meters apart from each other. Um, and then in addition to those. Uh, 147 points that we sample at um, I'm collecting uh, information on nests that I find doing nest transects to and from those locations as well as um, the plethora of sage grouse locations that we get from my other lab mate who's collecting data on greater sage grouse she'll provide me with a wealth of GPS locations for all of um, for all of those greater sage grouse and I also do abundance surveys and uh, nest searching surveys to and from grass locations as well.
0: I think you're you're definitely right by saying that how you conduct your field work is super unique. I haven't heard of many or any people who like get to work so closely with all of their lab mates usually because projects are so I guess different and diverse and so I, I think that is a cool thing that because you're all working in the sagebrush step habitat you do get to work together and like you know plow through difficult situations together. I know you told us that you guys get to drive ATVs around. I bet you there's been, you know, maybe some problems or accidents with those. <laughs>
1: Man, you you really you really have a unique way of making it all sound like so lighthearted. <laughs> no, it it really is a it's a fantastic opportunity. I I have never, like I said, never worked on such a highly collaborative project before. So, but you're right, it does, it poses a lot of challenges at the same time. You know, we, um, we have to navigate what really seems like almost the most impossible logistics that could ever be, you know, that you could ever be presented with. But, um, it does provide a lot of unique opportunity for collaboration and data collaboration and, um, you know, um, the, the, the unique individuals that we work with out there. Um, we work with all kinds of biologists on, um, th- from, you know, the state agencies, federal agencies, tribal agencies, we're working with, uh, the sheriff's department. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it can, it's, it's a huge, massive operation, but, um, at the end of the day, it's, it is very rewarding. And, a really cool, unique opportunity to be able to share that with two other graduate students that are also, um, you know, in the same landscape, collecting data real time at yeah. the same time. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm
0: sorry. I didn't make it. I didn't mean to make it sound so rosy. I I do fieldwork too, so I know know how hard it is. (laughs) Especially because I think, so you told us um, before this interview that you guys have like three kind of home bases in eastern Oregon that you kind of move between because you obviously have, you know, your locations are across 1.4 million acres of land, so you obviously need to kind of, you know, switch where you live. And I think you said one of them are these camper trailers that have like very limited amenities.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so... This is straight up a shout out to Lindsay in my lab right now because (laughs) she had to endure an entire season at this location last, uh, this past field season, whereas previous ones we've been in more of a rotation. We'll be rotating again this upcoming summer, but yeah, so we work, uh, across, um, this huge landscape and we have three sort of hubs that we work out of in order to be able to, to, meet all of the data needs that we have um but what that what that ends up meaning is that two of our locations are quite plush in the amenities <laughs> that we get <laughs> as we're out in the field um you know a legit uh like living area where you can cook and clean and do laundry and all that sort of stuff but there there flat is sort of that <laughs> <and> right <I'm laughs> okay kidding. maybe not flat screen but uh, the, the, the like 90s TVs have got like the the round front to them Oh, nice yeah nice. like Retro. The pixels yeah. are like <laughs> yeah that that is an option it's a potential <laughs> uh, the, the the middle site that you're talking about is definitely our most remote location um it's outside of Gentura Oregon which. If you've heard of Ginter, Oregon, then I feel like you're quite well traveled in I, the state of Oregon. I'm but
0: clearly not well traveled. I have no <laughs> idea.
1: It's in, um, it's right off of Highway Twenty in between Burns, and Ontario, Oregon. It's a small little cow town there, and um, and we stay at a BLM campground called Chucker Park, where we have two different, uh, you know, camper trailers out there that have really. I mean, one of them in particular, but both of them have been through some stuff. (laughs) Um, and they, uh, you know, they have limited amenities, of course, at this campground. There's running water, but it's not turned on until two months after we get there. And, you know, there's, um, showering facilities are limited and so we, we really make sure that we put a research crew out there that is uh hardy hardy and capable of enduring the elements how sure. long
2: is this season that you're out there
1: um well so my lab mates they their work starts a little bit earlier than mine and goes a little bit later um but my research in particular starts at the beginning of may and it wraps up about mid-july and that's all based around the um the the sort of tail the beginning and the tail ends of um, the breeding season for uh, these migratory songbirds.
0: But since you guys are so collaborative, you you leave earlier, right, to like help your lab mates with their data collection.
1: Yeah, so actually, I get out there about the third week of March, um, and depending on my morale towards mid-July, I try to stay <laughs> at least till the beginning of August. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a lot of, like, school time to be missing. I, I couldn't imagine a field season that goes so long.
1: Yeah, so I actually miss all of spring term. Yeah. Um, and, you know what, thus far, it hasn't been too challenging to navigate. If anything, it's kind of, uh, you know, I just pack in those other two terms. But, um, yeah, I mean... It it becomes a, a struggle and a challenge when I when I'm thinking about, you know, well, uh, I would really like to take this class, but it's only offered in spring term. So mm. that's that's the one time that it's like um, bummer. a bummer. Bit of a bummer. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>
0: so I guess speaking of school, let's transition a little um and talk about how Alan came to be here at OSU. Your kind of your journey to sagebrush obligate songbird ecology
1: lordy (laughs) (laughs) um
0: i guess we 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 can start um i guess kind of high school is when it kind of became clear to you that maybe science in general was something you wanted to pursue right
1: yeah um like wildlife biology like maybe a lot of high schoolers i was sort of just like man, I can't wait to get out of here kind of attitude. (laughs) Um, but, um, towards the end of my high school career, I actually had this super unique opportunity to do an internship with the district wildlife manager, um, in the, in the County that I grew up in. And it was definitely a, a sort of formidable time as far as, you know, thinking about my future, uh, suits both in my undergraduate program at Colorado State, um, but just sort of, kind of a, an eye opener as far as like, this could be something that you could do someday, like, <laughs> and get paid. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was a really awesome opportunity. I I I mean, I did everything from going out with the 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 district wildlife manager and, um, you know helping her out with a greater sage-grouse survey, which oh. I feel like I'm coming full circle here. but yeah. <laughs> um, And we, you know, translocated a small population of sharp-tailed grouse, and I would help her with, like, wildlife-human conflict mitigation and just all these other things that, you know, I, I, I just didn't really realize the ins and outs of a, a job quite like that. So it really uh, kind of set me up well for once I started to think about you know the schools that I potentially want to go to, and and the undergraduate biological programs that they would have. Uh, that experience definitely helped me kind of navigate that next step.
0: Mm. And I, uh, something that made me really laugh during our pre-interview was that um, when you were talking about this like volunteer internship experience in high school, um, you said that you kind of got to see like the best parts of the job, and you were like, well, of course they're not going to make high school students do boring paperwork, and you were like totally hooked just by like all the fun <laughs> stuff you got to do outside. So it it is kind of funny they were maybe like trying to lure like the next generation of wildlife biologists with you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I still to this day don't know. If that was her goal, or if you know, they were, <laughs> she she just was a nice enough person to be like, yeah, I'm not going to make him sit here and watch me, you know, put these signatures down on paper and check these boxes. But uh, yeah, she. I, I looking back now, I'm like, holy cow, did I uh, sort of get the the uh, VIP experience? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you, um, kind of after you made that decision, and um, you did your undergrad at your in your home state at Colorado State University and you know after that you still kind of knew that you wanted to continue down this path of um, wildlife biology. You went from you did like a lot of jobs like all over the country. I think you went to Texas, um, Wisconsin and then I think kind of the place that became most maybe formative for you to make the decision to go on to grad school was at Mon- at the University of Montana. Do you want to talk about your time at, there at the Avian Science Center.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I actually first got to Montana um, with a research position with uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks section. I was. um, I feel like you guys are just highlighting my uh, my greater sage grouse uh, (laughs) professional activities. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) which you know it's fitting. Um, But uh, the first time I got to Montana was for a position with Fish, Wildlife, and Parks as a uh, greater sage grouse a research technician, but that ended up spiraling into my position at the university of Montana, working at the avian science center there. Um, and that project was interested in looking at uh, the response of songbirds to different grazing regimes in central Montana. Um, it was yeah, incredibly formidable for me as an aspiring field biologist. You know, not only had I st- I started to get the opportunities to lead research, um, you know, uh, implement, uh, pretty large scale research in central Montana and, and, um, leading these research crews to, to get that data collected. But, uh, once the, f- the research seasons were over, I would come back to the university and be working in the avian science center to help, you know, work through reporting of that data and, uh, the development of publications, um, as well as, you know, uh, what ended up being sort of towards the end of that, end of my time there, um, working on some really novel, um, novel research, working, uh, looking at survey methodology. And, um, and so that's kind of how I wrapped up that position there, but it, it definitely was the game changer as far as getting me from, you know, the, what I hate, I hate this phrase but the data robot of being (laughs) a, a field biologist and then kind of, uh, opening that up for for broader avenues of really what the professions like and and kind of what that next step looked like
0: and that project that you just talked about about survey um, methodology was just published congratulations right
1: yeah yeah thank you um this was a project that um
0: that you like had a very big hand in yeah so building yeah yeah
1: exactly um So Caitlin Strickenfold, she's a, she's a newly graduated undergraduate from the University of Montana program and a lot of credit to her for how much, uh, blood, sweat, and tears she put into the, the sort of production of this publication. But, um, yeah, a lot of the sort of latter half of the six six months that I spent, um, At the end of my time there at the University of Montana was developing this research and getting it up to the data collection stage so we're super excited to report that that just got published in ecological applications Um, and that's uh, basically the paper's outlining sort of the benefits of a double dependent observer survey process and how well that uh, assists in reducing issues like misidentification and the double counting of critters on the landscape when you're doing abundant surveys. So yeah, that was a nice big feat of 2019. So
0: yeah, that's awesome. Um, We're slowly coming to the end of our time. But before we move on to our um, two traditions on the show, I just really quickly want to touch upon um, kind of the like an experience that you had um, starting graduate school, actually at a different school, because I think this is sometimes something that isn't often talked about um, when you kind of have problems with in your department or with your advisor and kind of the options that you have um, to not be tied there. So do you quickly wanna give us a little bit of a rundown of that and how you feel about it now that you're here?
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um... Yeah. So I guess this is, you know, sort of, a um, sort of my take for any of those listeners that, uh, are thinking about going to graduate school and, um, sort of, uh, you know, kind of the approach that, uh, that, that they, that I would advise them to take. Um, so Oregon state university, um, uh, wasn't the first time that I got accepted to a graduate program. Um, I actually was accepted to another graduate program in California. And, um, I guess if we're transitioning more into this, uh, phase where we're talking about the sort of formidable time of, of your professional life, it it is a good, important thing to talk about just because, um, I think a lot of people hear about these horror stories of, of going to graduate school and, um, kind of what that can entail based on, um, you know, it being a big jump for professional people or or people wanting to pursue that advanced degree and, uh, sort of, you know, um, kind of the, um, kind of the, the things you might expect to happen that may not end up happening, uh, may not end up happening for you. But, um, yeah, so I, I had uh, gotten into a program uh, in California and, uh, you know, it'd been something that I'd been working on for a long time. It really was research that I was excited about. Um, and I ended up, you know, leaving my position in Montana and moving down to California for it. Um, and ultimately, it ended up being, a, a, you know, a project that. The research was really interesting, and I think it, it, it could be the right experience, um, but the support just wasn't there. And, you know, I think that, if anything, it's just really important for people who are interested in pursuing uh, an advanced uh, degree in science, especially when there's something like intense field rigor that revolves around it, to really make sure that departments and programs that are um, supporting that kind of research really have the foundation and the robust output to be able to follow along, mm. um, or follow through for their students rather. And, um, and unfortunately this, this experience just was not that the the case for me. So I ended up, um, after my pilot season, not actually ever starting that program, which I'm really thankful for because. If anything, it um, got me to where I'm at now, which I have nothing but wonderful things to say about um, being a graduate student here at this institution. But I also think, think that it speaks to the fact that, you know, it, it really is important for people in pursuing their advanced degrees to know that they're going into an institution that's going to support them, that there's more than just the research there for them. There's more than just a really nice, um, and easygoing rapport with them and a faculty member at that institution that really, there's so much more to your graduate experience beyond the research and beyond that one, uh, interpersonal connection that you have with an advisor. So, um, yeah, so being here, I have an incredible advisor here. I'm super lucky. He's, he's very supportive of all the work that goes on and works effort, effort effortlessly not yes, effort. Yeah, effortlessly yeah. <laughs> I, it seemed weird in the moment because I was like well he, it's not effortless <laughs> <laughs> he works effortlessly. He works tirelessly we'll put it that way um oh, to wait, make sure actually and, and ensure, I don't think
0: effortlessly makes sense <laughs> tirelessly, right. <Exactly>. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: tirelessly to make sure that that his students are having a positive experience and that's just not the case everywhere you go um sometimes you know even at this level of education, somebody's not going to work for their students. So um, so yeah, it was a very it, it formed a lot about how I lead and guide myself as a professional now, but probably most importantly, it makes me really grateful um, for the place that I'm at now and kind of not take for granted any of uh, any of the experiences like, being here, for example, <laughs> yeah. uh, at Oregon State and uh, talking about this really cool research that we're doing at uh, in the Dinkins Lab.
2: That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. We have had a few people on the show talk about that. Uh, I think Oregon State is a really welcoming environment, maybe friendlier than everywhere maybe not everywhere else but <laughs> i like it too <laughs> me too uh, me 3 yes i wanted to say also that if you want to find links to Alan's labs twitter or to his most recent publication and see pictures of the birds etc it's all on the blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu/inspiration and it's the most recent blog <laughs> titled, Putting Years and Years of Established Theory to the Test. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> dun, now, dun, dun. now go forth and do it, Alan. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been, yeah, it's been a real pleasure having you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank we, you, guys.
2: Yeah. We have a couple traditions on inspiration dissemination. Number one is is to offer up a piece of advice that you would like to give someone on a similar journey or a past self or anyone listening at home.
1: Yeah, I think uh, probably my, the advice I would give myself, which of course I think is the best advice to give anyone listening.
0: <laughs> Yourself like in the past, past Alan. In the Alan. past okay. self <laughs> is really
1: just to believe in the things that you, um, you know, that, that you feel most passionate about and to effort, effortlessly, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> tirelessly. do <laughs> a callback. Keep working. <laughs> I'm here for you, Alan. <laughs> keep, keep working towards, towards that because in the end, you know, things are going to work out. You just have to keep pushing through barriers or navigating them however you need. Sometimes you don't push, sometimes you just go around. Step
0: around. <laughs> Step around <laughs> to a new school. <laughs> to a new state. <laughs>
1: See, I knew I knew I'd have you guys on my team. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Uh uh, yes, and our <laughs> our second tradition is um, that you pick um, the song that ends your interview. Um, so, do you is there anything you want to say about the song before you play it? Do you want to introduce it?
1: Yeah, one quick thing. One one quick thing. So, okay. um, I study birds. Um, what? Well, you know, shocker. Um, and. Although I wouldn't necessarily consider myself an avid birder, I do love birds, and there happens to be a lot of other bird-loving people in my family. And real quick, my grand, my mom's uh, grandmother's maiden name was Ferguson. And mm-hmm. a lot of these bird enthusiasts in my family, um, we now have a group chat called Ferg's Birds pretty sure they're gonna love this song
0: okay so it's for your family <laughs> it's for the fam um do you do you want me to say the title or should i just play it should it be a little surprise
1: i think you can say the title okay yeah.
0: <laughs> um well again alan thanks so much for joining us on the show and um everyone listening um you are now going to listen to surf and bird by the Trashmen.
2: enjoy
1: Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID.
2: This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.